Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode number 98 for the 2nd 3rd of January 2014. Today, I'm bringing you the second part of an interview with Michael Heiser to talk about the various ideas of Zachariah Sitchin and the evidence, or lack thereof, for his various ideas. So you tend to approach things uh, pretty differently than I, where I focus more on the astronomical uh, plausibility of this unknown planet X, whereas you focus more on the actual evidence that Sitchin put forward in order to make his case. With that in mind, what led you to address the material of Zachariah Sitchin in particular? On the last episode, we talked about uh, sort of the idea of what led you to this in general. Was it really Sitchin that started you on it, or was it more that you were led to it by people's feedback to you? Well, once I started to hear from people more and more about Zechariah Sitchin, and again, you know, jumped in and, and read The Twelfth Planet and whatnot, it I, it, I was really impressed by the fact, you know, negatively, that uh, this guy had a huge following, you know, that I didn't know about. And, of course, his own, you know, book claims, you know, on, on the back of the books, you know, 70 million of these have been sold in X number of languages. I thought, well, this is unbelievable that, you know, you could you could get this widespread of an audience for this stuff. But you know, once I thought about it, you know, for a few minutes, it's like, well, who who's going to say anything? I mean, how many geeks are there out there, like, like you, Heiser, <laughs> that are going to, A, care, you know, and, and B, be working in these fields and feel that it's even worth your time, mm-hmm. any time, to do this. And, and I, I, I really did honestly f- feel a responsibility to say something. And so out of that, this the website, com was born. And I, I wanted to have a place where I could go, I, I could sort of cherry-pick the, the most important claims in his system stuff about Nibiru and a 12th planet, Anunnaki, all that kind of thing. And, and have a place, a repository that I could direct people to and that people could find, you know, on this, on this thing we call the Internet. So, yeah, out of, out of feedback, it really caught my attention, and I felt compelled to do something. So then, what are some of the... What, what is the basis for his claims, and where does he get this idea of... Nibiru and the Anunnaki and them being almost leprechaun-like in terms of mining gold and their obsession <laughs> with gold and all this other stuff. I mean, what is the the basis for it as far as uh, what Sitchin claims? Yeah, he, he's, he's claimed just about everything except starting the football program at Notre Dame for these guys. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to try, I'm going to try, this is going to sound odd, but I'm going to try to be a little charitable here. Okay. I think that he he was reading. I don't think that Sitchin knows knew any of these languages. I don't think he did any of his own translation. Uh, I've been saying that for years, you know, on on different shows. What I think he did was, I think he started reading. He discovered at some point uh, ancient Near Eastern literature. He was reading it in translation. Was drawn in by the by the content. Was fascinated by it, and and he. 
again, I'm trying to be charitable here, and he imagined. He imagined an interpretation of this material that essentially took it from what it was and projected it into the realm of science fiction and then created a narrative for that and then called it nonfiction uh, or, or sold it that way. Um, along the way, he just had to make things up. The, the, the kernels of what he's saying uh, are found in the text. There are a group of deities called the Anunnaki. Okay, you can find them in the text. There's over a hundred occurrences of that term. Uh, there is this thing called Nibiru. Okay, some sort of, you know, in some texts it's something out there in space. It's celestial. Other times it's more generic. It refers to a crossing point. Okay, there, these terms exist. But what Sitchin does with them and the narrative he creates, he takes the the Sumerian, Akkadian pantheon, and of course turns them into extraterrestrials, whether they're called Anunnaki or not. Well, the Anunnaki must, you know, I think they're extraterrestrials, so other gods, they must be extraterrestrials too. And then he, 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 he writes a, a soap opera of them. He, he takes the, the ancient Near Eastern, you know, mythological epics and sort of puts them into a modern narrative that includes the idea that these deities are extraterrestrial beings. Okay, you won't find any of the major ideas that Sitchin attributes to these beings, uh, or the, you know, this place called Nibiru, if it is a place. You won't find any of that in the text. Now, what I what I mean by that is, <clears throat> and this is part of why I created the website. Let's take Anunnaki. I made a web a website. It has a, a, a tab or a page on it devoted to the Anunnaki, where I do something that is terribly boring but terribly important. I create a video of me on my screen going to something called the Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature. Again, it's this is stuff that's that's free. It's online. It's the result of decades, you know, centuries, over a century of scholarly effort to put this stuff you know, into, into translation, transliteration, readable form. Now it's on the internet. You can go there yourself. I, I made a video of me going to this site, typing in the term for the Anunnaki, mm-hmm. running the search, and then showing what to do with the results. Okay, You get the results here. You get the list of all the places in the Sumerian literature where Anunnaki occurs. You hit the little TR next to it, you click on it, you get an English translation. And challenging people, look, read through them. Don't read Sitchin. Read through the actual texts. You will not find the Anunnaki ever associated with Nibiru. You will not find the Anunnaki mining gold. Okay, you will not find the Anunnaki doing you know, an assortment of other things that are really important for Sitchin's narrative. You know, when it comes to Nibiru, Nibiru exists as a term. It's in astronomical texts you know, that the Sumerians and the Akkadians uh, created. We have them. We even have dictionaries that the Akkadians made for themselves in their language and then creating aligned entries to Sumerian. The Akkadians inherited the Sumerian script, mm-hmm. and while they were inheriting that and adapting it to their own language, they preserved 
Sumerian. They preserve the word meanings. We have bilingual dictionaries. Okay? We, we, we know what the terms meant to them. It didn't mean, in the case of Nibiru, a 12th planet, a planet beyond, I like to say, beyond Saturn, because all of the astronomical texts that we have from these civilizations, and there's a lot of it, there are no known planets beyond Saturn. Okay? They have astrolabes. They have astronomical tables. I mean, they, they, they really gave us a, a truckload of information so that we can know what they knew and how they thought about it. Well, Nibiru is not a planet beyond Saturn. Uh, it's associated either with Jupiter in one text and in another text it's associated with Mercury. Hmm. You say, well, how can that be? Did they get it wrong? Well, it depends on what you think the term means. Does it refer to a conjunction? Does it refer to an appearance? Does it refer to a body? Again, those, there is some ambiguity there because of how the term's used. But I can tell you what it isn't used for. It isn't used for a planet inhabited by Anunnaki. Okay, so a lot of this, again, is boring. It doesn't really, uh, it, it, it's not sexy. It's not spectacular. You know, to go to primary text, look these things up, look at them in English translation, and then say, oh, well, you know, how in the world could Sitchin say that? It's a lot more interesting to do what Sitchin did. You know, you read this stuff in translation, you go, oh, this is a cool story. You know, and they're, they're, they're gods, and gods don't live on Earth, so they must be aliens. So let's, you know, let's write all that out. You know, let, let's, let's create a narrative here, an alternative history. I wonder if that'll sell. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it sells really well, because there are lots of people who hate, you know, the creationist views, and they hate Darwin, and boy, this is really interesting, because there's mystery here. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it doesn't fit into the normal categories, so it's attractive. So it sounds sort of like, say, um, uh, to use a recent movie, say I really like uh, what L. Frank Baum wrote way back, you know, a hundred years ago, and I, I like the character mm -hmm. Dorothy, I like Ozma, I like Tidwoodsman, and, and the Land of Oz, but then mm -hmm. I'm going to effectively write fan fiction, and I'm going to yeah. take the names and take, you know, not even the concepts, but just take some of the names and then do whatever I want with them. Is that sort of what you're saying it seems like Sitchin yeah. did? Okay. Yeah. And, there, and, there, and you take enough of what's there, in your case, in the, in the original version, so that when people encounter it who are familiar with that stuff a little bit, there's enough there that, that it looks like it's attached. It looks like it belongs. It looks, it looks like, well, this might be a possible rereading. Of that, but you know, you know, you know what I mean. There's enough similarity that you can sort of get people to think that thought. And if you're newbies, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. You know, then you're entertained by the, the current version. But yeah, I think that's a that's a, a pretty decent analogy. You know, for what what he's doing, I, I think he really believed it. I think he came to actually believe this stuff that he'd stumbled across something and and could not either could see. Here's the ambiguity for me: he could not or did not. I'm not going to accuse him of dishonesty. I'm, I'm willing to think that he was just a little bit off-kilter as opposed to just openly dishonest. Mm -hmm. But the, this narrative that, that he started telling became to him personally compelling and, and, and worked in his mind better than other alternatives. And I think he actually came to believe it. It's really odd because there are some, some books of his play uh, that, that he has places where he 
mean, he's Jewish by background. People say, what do you mean Sitchin couldn't read Hebrew and he messes up Hebrew grammar? Well, he does. Okay, my, my, my 12-year-old, my 14-year-old, they can read English, but they, you know, if you ask them to diagram sentences, they're going to get stuff wrong. If you ask them to do, you know, grammatical analysis, it doesn't matter that they're sight readers. Mm-hmm. Can you do the analysis? Can you do hermeneutics? Can you do interpretation? Can you do all this stuff? Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, just, no. I'm I don't Jewish. think you can do any of it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you, you look at it, and he, he has this tradition. He has, again, a Jewish background. And there are places in his books where he senses that what he's saying is, is really treading on Jewish monotheistic sensibilities, and he tries to sort of accommodate that and, and kind of come up with an alternate way of understanding that. And so you, you can tell he's, he's thinking about what he's doing, and he, he has a, 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 you know, an agenda. And what I mean by that is he's not trying to just relate the facts. He's trying to create a, a world and a worldview in what he's doing. And I think he just sort of got taken by the whole enterprise and when people loved it and you know really you know soaked it up he started selling lots of books i think he became convinced that he was just really onto something and and that was that i'm sure that some people as far as i know not actual archaeologists or uh, language scholars but i'm sure there are some people out there who would say that Sitchin was actually right in his reading and interpretation and that the modern scholars are wrong. And, and you said that these codexes or codices, uh, I'm not sure what the plural is, uh, but these have been built up over the last century or so. But yeah, I'm, to play devil's advocate, I'm sure that there's some places where they're incorrect. I'm curious as to what you would say to those people and how, if, if you can describe it in a, the short version of how do you actually figure out what a certain symbol means? Because um, I think you and I, just in the last few days, although it'll probably be you know, two months ago when listeners finally get this, we've been getting this email from this guy who is trying to point out that you know this symbol actually could mean several different things, or this symbol means you know, one thing, and then you're saying, well, no, it's actually it means this. I'm curious as to what that process is, and effectively the how do we know what we know for these translations? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say a couple of things. I would say that the way you articulated that, I'm not saying you you did this. I'm saying I'm making a generalization here. Incorrectly frames my argument. Okay. And what I mean by that is you can't misinterpret the content of words that doesn't even exist. In other words, if there was a line in a single tablet that had the Anunnaki on Nibiru and called Nibiru a planet, we could argue about how to translate that. What I'm saying is that information doesn't exist in a line. It just isn't there. So I can't mistranslate vapor. So in one sense, it's not about translation. It's not about ambiguities of the content. Now, that's different, though, than this symbolic stuff. Um, you know, I look at, at something like this this cylinder seal that uh, Sitchin and, and his, his fan base use to, you know, talk about, well, here here's this cylinder seal, and it has this, this uh, object that, you know, looks like a shining sun. They would call it a sun. It has these dots around it. 
And, you know, if you count them and include that one, there's 12, and remember, there must be 12 planets and all that sort of thing. Well, what I want to see is, first of all, I think that is a misanalysis of the symbol, and, and the way you get there is you find texts where a text will correspond to a symbolic object, a picture, a pictorial representation, where the people themselves who produce that thing are commenting on that picture. And if you get enough of them, and there are plenty of them, you can start to develop a typology of what that pictorial representation was used to describe. What thought was it used to convey? You know, what 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 does it mean to the person who created it? You know, you build a typology of these things. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing you would check is, does this seal, which has text but which says nothing about the object itself, does this seal and what it, what it says give us any information whereby we can take this seal and align it to the typology? Well, it doesn't, so that's sort of a dead end. Then the next question I want to know is, okay, Let's assume that this seal describes 12 planets. We don't have anything that actually says that, but let's just assume it for the time being. Let's go to cuneiform astronomical texts by both the Sumerians and the people who inherited their work, the Akkadians and the Babylonians. In the voluminous literature that we have about their astronomy, do they ever mention 12 planets? No. Do they ever mention Nibiru as a planet beyond Saturn? No. I mean, you, you start to take the known that you have, and you use that to try to answer this unknown over here. Hmm. Okay, that's using primary source material, asking questions about it, and trying to get the answers from, drum roll please, from the primary source material. You know, you're comparing you know, known to the unknown, but you're operating within pardon the pun, within the same orbit here. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to, to, as best you can, figure out what the people who produce this stuff, how they would have thought about it. What claims, what assertions would they have made about this thing that they created? I don't really care what someone living two millennia after them things that they meant. I would rather go with what they meant. And so this is what I'm telling people to do when it comes to vocabulary. Well, what might you, you have this text, maybe maybe it's just translated wrong, maybe Sitchin translated it correctly. Well, can we find Sitchin's word meanings in any of the bilingual dictionaries? No. We, you know, in other words, you keep hitting this no answer when you do these things with what Sitchin is saying. And I've had to tell people, look, here's where we're at. I'm going to assume that the Sumerians are correct about what they wrote. When they tell me, because they, the Sumerians and the Akkadians created these dictionaries, I'm going to go with them. My money is on them, as opposed to this guy who lived 2,000 years later or longer. Okay, that seems like a reasonable bet, that they would be better able to define their words than this guy can. And to me, that seems really simple. But to a lot of people, it doesn't seem simple at all. They, they don't want to hear that mm-hmm. because the idea has caught hold and it, it has sparked a fascination within them. And, and that's just where they're at. 
Okay, so it seems like there are two answers to my question. First, that I didn't ask it right. Uh, that it really, <laughs> with, with Sitchin's stuff, it's more that he makes these links when they simply don't exist. Like, he'll say, Anunnaki lived on Nibiru, and that's in the text, when you're saying, Anunnaki is written in one book way over here that has nothing to do with Nibiru, which is written in something else, which is way over, like, they're completely separate. And then the other question was, okay, so then how do they actually, or how how do you make up, or not make up, how do you figure out what symbol means what, and that's from the text, because it's, and this is something I didn't know, is that... I want to know... uh, So I'm just trying to make sure I understand it. So you have, and this is something I didn't know, is that you have both symbols and you have writings, and that... In some of the writings, it says this, you know, maybe not verbatim, but this symbol means this. And that's what you use as a starting point for understanding yeah, what they what, meant? What, you're right. What you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to you're, you're trying to to use all of the things that a, that a culture produced, all of the, the intellectual, the creative intellectual enterprise of a culture that we have, whether it's text or statuary, whatever, Mm-hmm. You're trying to use all of that material to answer uh, a question about what they would have thought about something, as opposed to going outside that culture. Now, there is a place for doing that because there are civilizations that live close to them, so there are cross-cultural connections. And you you might find a Babylonian writer who said, hey, the Sumerians thought this, you know, about that. And so you, you might find, you know, that's another layer away of the information. But where I start with is, look, we have this culture, we have its its intellectual repository in front of us. I'm sitting here, low, and on my desk is this cylinder seal. <clears throat> and and there's a guy that, that says, hey, this cylinder seal informs us that the Sumerians knew that there were 12 planets. So my, you know, if I can translate anything on there, well, does, that, does the translation validate that, that view? Well, no, it doesn't, so now what do I do? Well, is there anything else that the Sumerians said anywhere that would at least validate the idea that there are 12 planets? If I can find that in their intellectual repository, then this interpretation of the seal might be true. But if I can't find any of that, and there's so there's just a lot of astronomical material that's all published. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it makes me wish I were an astronomer so I could understand it you know, better. But <clears throat> you know, what I what I can read and understand is that they don't have a planetary system in their astronomy that goes beyond Saturn. So we, it rules out the twelve right away. So then the question arises in my mind: Well. How could I possibly claim that this seal conveys an idea that is not only not validated elsewhere within, again, we're still operating within the realm of the Sumerian thought, it's not validated anywhere else by their material, but it's actually contradicted. So what is probably the best conclusion to draw? Well, the best conclusion to draw is that this interpretation of this seal is a misinterpretation. I need corroborating evidence from within that culture that they actually thought this. And can, of course, then when you know, if you, if you reach a stalemate or you, or you want to investigate beyond, then okay, what cultures, you know, were neighbors, 
And did they, did, you know, the Akkadian scientists, the Babylonian scientists, and further down the line chronologically with the Greeks and the Hebrews and all this, do they, do they is there evidence that they were aware of Sumerian astronomy? Did they partake of it? Did they, did they interact with it in anything? Do, do we have any texts that, that tell us clearly that maybe an astronomer in this culture read astronomical material from Sumer? Do we have, well, we have lots of that stuff. And you, you know, and you look at all that. And what I'm saying is, look, you won't find anywhere this idea that there are 12 planets. So what you're left with is you're left with one guy writing in the 1970s who says, this seal means X. This seal means we have 12 planets, mm-hmm. as opposed to a complete absence of that idea in any material of the parent culture and the cultural and, and, and the cultures that are geographically and intellectually most closely related to it. You've got zero. You've got a huge gaping absence of that idea. And so my conclusion is I'm going to go with the ancient people on this one. And I'm going to guess that I'm safer to land where they're telling me they're landing, you know, what they're thinking, what I know that they thought, as opposed to just adopting this novel idea that I have no hope of validating in the primary material. And so that, that illustratively is, is, again, how scholars would approach something like this. When it comes to the term Anunnaki, you mentioned that, we'll go back to that. Yeah, I am saying that if you look up all the occurrences of Anunnaki and you read the text where it occurs, none of them connect the Anunnaki with Nibiru. None of them have the Anunnaki mining gold. I mean, again, the, some of these fundamental ideas, even even the creation stuff, you know, where Sitchin has the the Anunnaki, you know, plural deities, you know, creating humankind. Even that's actually wrong, because if you actually go to the to the text. In the one that he uses is actually a Babylonian text, Babylonian, the creation text. Mm-hmm. The Anunnaki are in the room, but there's only one deity creating humankind, you know, with, with the clay and the blood of a god and all that kind of... They're, they're, they're kind of like watching, but they're not doing anything. So, you know, even, even something like that, he's, he's, made a, he's made a leap that actually isn't in the text. You know, and I like, to, I like to think simply, look, if you walked up to a Sumerian who knew his... You know, his Sumerian Bible or his, you know, his his primary literature, and you said, "Hey, you know, what about those Anunnaki creating humans? Wasn't that a blast?" I think he'd look at you and go, "Well, they didn't do that. This, you know, Kingu did that. Didn't you read it? Did you fail like like Sumerian or something? You know, Sumerian lit class or <clears throat> you know, I, I we we have a lot of this material, and I just think that we're better off trying, doing our best." to let them inform us. You know, it's, it's not a perfect science. It doesn't always work. It, it doesn't answer every question. But one thing it does do is it weeds out ideas, or at least it exposes ideas, uh, as to having no basis at all within, again, the intellectual inheritance of that civilization. So I think along those lines of letting the text interpret itself, uh, that might be a phrase I, I got from one of your interviews, actually. Um, possibly, possibly not. Um, I think my last question is uh, sent in by a listener to the podcast, Dustin. He had the observation that Sitchin's ideas 
really seemed kind of very specific to his time, to you know, the 1970s. Uh, you know, sort of like Barney and Betty Hill, that UFO case. Like they used language and they used terms like Betty got a book from the aliens that was very specific to that time. And another example is one that you've been talking about is the Twelve Planets, where um, when Sitchin was writing, well, we had nine planets, plus you had the sun and the moon would be ten, plus you have this Nibiru is planet X. So that's how you get twelve, but as you just said, well, actually, they didn't know about Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, or even asteroids. So I'm curious if there are any other obvious examples of Sitchin sort of writing for his time as opposed to how the Sumerians would have thought about this stuff? Well, I I think uh, probably an obvious one is the whole importation of nuclear warfare into the Sumerian texts. And it's not just Sumerian, but it's, it's other ancient texts that Sitchin in some of his books uh, will have. You know, this idea of, of interplanetary conflict and, you know, conflict between alien deities and, and involving, again, nuclear capabilities. To me, that that is right out of, you know, the 70s, the Cold War kind of hermeneutic that, you know, frankly, again, this, this will irritate any, you know, some Christian listeners, but you'll read that in prophecy books, too about prophetic interpretation. I remember in the 70s when, you know, the, the Antichrist was, you know, had something to do with the Russians, and now it's, you know, the Muslims. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, we, we tend to, to have this sort of Cold War hermeneutic, and then it's what, whoever the, the political enemy of the time hermeneutic that we use to filter and inform our interpretation of the Bible. Well, I, I think, you know, there are hints of that in what Sitchin does. The, the nuclear thing is, is, to me, pretty obvious. The you get a lot of this in, in other ancient alien sort of theorists, uh, people who want to marry the ancient alien idea to modern visitation. It's always this sort of ecologically mo- motivated, save the planet, you know, free energy kind of stuff. I mean, you, you can see, again, these, these current ideas that sort of find homes in, in this narrative. So, yeah, I, I think your observation is a good one. Well, that's actually about it that, that I had. We talked about a couple of the things I was going to ask you, like us, what are the strongest textual lines of evidence, but it sounds like there really aren't any textual lines of evidence. He basically took the terms and did what he wanted. Yeah, the only thing he has is he has he has the characters, you know, the, the deity names. Um, you know, and he has, again, these... Uh, he's got the characters. You know, he, he, he'll take something like... Uh, so here's another one. Another thing that comes out of the '70s is is Velikovskian uh, views of catastrophism that again were current in, at the time, and Sitchin imports them into uh, some of the mythological epics of Sumer. So that when two gods are battling and one kills off another one, well, that must be you know this planetary body colliding with another planetary body and then you know we have the results that sort of thing so you get you get velikovsky and catastrophism in there too but he you know he has a lot of fodder there are we have these stories we have these mythological epics we've got the, the cast of characters we've got the names and the places and all that sort of thing and 
and uh, again, your analogy of of uh, Wizard of Oz. Oz, the Great and Powerful, yeah, yeah, is is actually uh, I think a pretty good one, you know, for what's going on. Yeah, I thought it was a good movie, but it's like this doesn't really have much to do with the books. <laughs> <laughs> Special effects were well, good. <laughs> there, there's that. <laughs> Uh, and then you don't you don't have enough you don't have enough living zealots like when 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 uh, the with the uh, Marvel remakes you know when when somebody mm-hmm. steps out of line with what's in the comic book history for a character people just have a cow you know you don't have the the L Frank you know Baum Society or something <laughs> clamoring for accuracy. Yeah, well, I had that issue with the 2009 Star Trek movie when they destroyed Vulcan and I was you know you you can't. Do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're getting slightly <laughs> off topic. <laughs> but, yeah. No, um, but I understand it completely. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so I guess I'll ask, is there anything else uh, important to, uh, to this discussion that you think uh, we've left out? Well, I would encourage people to watch the uh, Ancient Aliens Debunked oh, yes. uh, documentary, oh. of course, along with, you know, you should have a link to you know some of your past shows, the archive there. Uh, but definitely the documentary. Um, there are it's a lot of things it doesn't hours, cover, but it is. It's three hours and it's free. Um, a lot of things it doesn't cover, but what it does cover, I think it does a pretty good job. You know of, of showing that you know you're really really getting a lot of disinformation uh, from ancient aliens. And, uh, of course, the theme throughout all of this, I think, bears reemphasizing is that this is really a don't take our word for it, don't take their word for it, go to the primary sources, go actually look at the objective data for this kind of mm-hmm. stuff, and see what happens. I mean, see what the translations actually say for this stuff, and... Um, you know, I'll li- as I said, I'll link up to your various websites, uh, especially for this episode, the SitchinIsWrong.com site. And as you said, it has the video of you going to these translation sites and typing in the term and saying, hey, look, what Sitchin yeah, said I, is wrong. <laughs> or it's I, not I don't even, know what else I could do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not even I, wrong. It's It doesn't exist. It, he almost, he literally made up a lot of it. And... I think that that's an issue that a lot of people who are Sitchinites don't seem to understand when they want to converse with you. It's not the, okay, let's quibble about this point. It's show me where even a smidgen of his idea has anything to do with the original text. Yeah, Uh, I I just want people to look. You know, it's not exciting, but it's better than than me just lecturing to you. Just, Just go look. Yeah. Um, so I guess with that said, um, I will say thank you. You've been very generous with your time, uh, an hour and a half total in this episode and the last, because we're breaking them up. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's amazing what you can do at post-processing. All right. Uh, so um, I guess I'll thank you again, um, and I will say shalom. Yep, thank you. Shalom. Thanks again to Michael Heiser for donating so much of his time to put out two episodes on Ancient Aliens, Zechariah Sitchin, MJ-12 documents, and the various other things that we talked about in these past two episodes. The next episode of the podcast will be the final pre-recorded one before February's episode 100, Spectacular. 
that wraps up this 98th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me directly, pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and I'm usually a month or two-ish behind. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast service or website of choice. If you liked it, tell people. It helps spread the news about the show.